This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 16, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The Department of Justice seized phone records of Associated Press reporters as part of an investigation into government leaks. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, discusses how the Department of Justice did it and what it means for press freedom. The Associated Press has revealed that the Justice Department subpoenaed about two months of records, both from their main switchboard and fax lines and the personal phones of their reporters as part of a leak investigation, probably into a story reporting on a foiled terrorist plot, a story that the AP itself actually held on to until they were confident there was no national security risk involved. Uh, this is pretty extraordinary when you think about the scale of this kind of request, especially given the rules Justice Department is supposed to follow when it targets reporters with surveillance tools like subpoenas for phone records. Uh, they didn't get a, a wiretap warrant, of course, but uh, just from the records of who called who when and who called who for how long and uh, you know what order they called in. For example, did a reporter talk to, talk to a source and then immediately call their editor? Uh, you can get a very comprehensive picture of what a news organization is working on, what stories uh, they've got in the works, uh, and of course, what they were trying to find out, who their sources for those stories are. And it's very hard to imagine why it would be necessary to get one such a broad temporal span of records, and second, uh, why it would be necessary not to target particular reporters, but main lines of the office where 100 AP reporters were working, especially given that confidential information appears in the press basically every day. People talk anonymously to the press, and it's hard to see why this is an investigation that would require pulling out the stops in a way that has real potential to chill uh, the crucial fourth estate function of uh, serving as a check on government. I mean, this is really, uh, in a way, part of this administration's unprecedented war on whistleblowers. The Obama administration has prosecuted more people under the Espionage Act than all other administrations combined. Uh, and this seems like a, a way of announcing loud and clear, uh, you have no ability to expect anonymity if you talk to press. And so if unless you're leaking something the White House wants leaked, uh, you'd better think twice and maybe three times uh, because you are likely to have your life uh, essentially destroyed by it. We look at some of the whistleblowers the DOJ has gone after in many cases. Uh, you know, this is where the cases fell apart, where it turned out that the information leaked was not sensitive or classified. It was just embarrassing to the government. And yet putting three people through that kind of hell, even if they ultimately uh, prevail in court, is a, a powerful, powerful deterrent. Um, as a lot of experts have pointed out, this seems like a, a, just an unusually broad request for information from the phone companies, especially uh, you know, when it involves the press being targeted. Um, but it's not quite, as the uh, president of the AP said, an unprecedented one. Uh, certainly going back to the bad old days of J. Edgar Hoover uh, when uh, hostile journalists were targeted and uh, Hoover compiled uh, detailed files full of derogatory and embarrassing information about them. Uh, but 
far more recently, in the mid-2000s, we know thanks to uh, Justice Department Inspector General reports that there are cases where not two months but 22 months, nearly two years of records uh, from Washington Post and New York Times reporters were obtained, not legitimately and by subpoena, uh, but using no legal process in what the Inspector General called a, a serious abuse of the FBI's power to obtain information from uh, telephone carriers. Uh, they actually submitted false statements that there was an emergency, an exigent circumstance, uh, that they had requested a formal subpoena from a U.S. attorney that was coming any day now, but they needed the information right now. None of that was true, uh, but they obtained these two years of records on many of these reporters. Uh, those records then went into uh, the FBI's databases and remained there for three years before the news organizations involved were told about it. Uh, normally, the rules require them to be informed uh, pretty quickly. What are, the, what are the rules governing the process required for the government to get access to that kind of information? So normally, the attorney general is supposed to personally approve uh, subpoenas for records involving news organizations and journalists. Um, there's supposed to be a careful balancing process where they consider the potential effect that I talked about, these chilling effects, these uh, effective hampering, this important First Amendment function, uh, and then decide whether it's ultimately justified as a last resort after other methods have been tried and, and proven unsuccessful. We don't know uh, to what extent that occurred here. The requests are really supposed to be narrowed to the extent possible, even if that makes the investigation a little more difficult, um, out of respect for, again, the, the First Amendment values at issue. Uh, and then again, ideally, they're supposed to get advance notice because, you know, it's not like they can delete the phone company's records. Um, and ideally, they would try and negotiate and get voluntary disclosure or at least narrowing so they can say, look, this is the dates I was working on this story. Don't get other records involving other confidential sources. Um, it doesn't appear that any of that happened here. It's not clear why. Uh, and at the very least, they're supposed to be notified after the fact. Uh, except another thing we learned from that inspector general report is that the FBI does what's called community of interest analysis, where they don't just get one person's phone records, but they start with one person's phone records and say, give us that community of interest or calling circle and get also the records of the people that they're in phone communication with. Um, and what we know is that this is something that finally in 2009, DOJ lawyers sort of asked for an opinion on from uh, the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, which said, look, it doesn't matter whether you intend to get journalist records or you're targeting a journalist records, if you put in a request, it's likely to sweep in uh, press records. So you're, for example, doing a community of interest request uh, from someone you think is a source to the press. Um, then the, all those rules and notification obligations are supposed to kick in. Uh, and apparently, the FBI decided that it disagreed. It thought that because the people who filed that request at the time didn't understand what they were doing. Apparently, these kinds of requests were often filed sort of using boilerplate without really understanding what they were asking for, uh, that they did not need to notify uh, the, the press. Uh, in this case, it's not clear that they actually got the records that they were uh, trying to get, but it does raise the question, are they still using these community of interest requests to get, uh, you know, two or three degrees of separation from the initial target of a telephone request? Uh, and if they do that, do they think they have to tell the press whose records they get uh, just because, you know, or whether or not 
a reporter was the, the named target of that request. We don't know. We also don't know actually how broadly they interpret the notification requirement or these rules more generally. The, the actual literal wording of the federal regulation here uh, just talks about telephone toll records. It doesn't say anything about internet records, for instance, and most journalists I know uh, do a lot of their work by email and Gchat. And so you would ask, you know, we know that the Justice Department thinks that under many circumstances, they don't even need a warrant to get the contents of someone's email, never mind the transactional data about who's emailing who. So are they reading those requirements in a very narrow and literal way um, so that it only applies to phone records and not internet records? We don't know. This is certainly a case where they seem to have gone over the top on phone records. We haven't heard anything about internet records. It seems like it would be very unusual if they had decided not to bother about those, um, although maybe that the AP hosts their own email servers and so that would have been difficult for other reasons. Uh, I think one thing this points up is not just the problem of the this administration's war on whistleblowers and the chilling effects of this kind of surveillance on effective journalism to check government, uh, but more broadly, the sort of absurdly minimal protection, anything other than content of communications, that is metadata, transactional data, uh, enjoys. It's a very bad Supreme Court ruling from 1979 that essentially held the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply if what you're seeking is not the phone call, but the information about the phone call that the phone company has. They decided that we don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information, which means the government can routinely obtain it, uh, not using a judge-approved search warrant, but using mere subpoenas issued by administrative agencies or prosecutors, uh, using even secret national security letters that come with gag orders. And uh, you know, the result is that as more and more information is stored by phone carriers and internet service providers revealing where physically we are from day to day, who we're in communication with, what websites we are visiting, what newspapers we're reading, what movies we're watching, um, huge amounts of information are effectively no longer protected by that Fourth Amendment warrant requirement and federal statutes don't provide a whole lot more protection. Uh, so, you know, it's really, I think, as Justice Sotomayor suggested in a recent ruling, time to reconsider that so-called third-party doctrine that says the Fourth Amendment just doesn't apply here. Uh, maybe it doesn't need to apply to every single piece of information held about us by some kind of company, um, but the assumption that it never applies, that we never need judicial authority, I think leaves us more and more unprotected as it seems to have left the AP unprotected. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.